Thank you, Mark. Okay, good morning, everybody. Sorry, I realized at the very last second that I did not even have a mic on, so I would have been up here talking, and you would have just heard me, 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 and been very quiet. So two weeks ago, we dove into Second Peter, and we were going through the first four verses. And as we did, as we went through these four, first four verses, there were a couple of things as we ended that I challenged you guys with to meditate on as you went about your week. And the first major point that I challenged you with that Peter made was that our faith is established or given to us by Christ through his righteousness. And because of this, no one Christian is ever better than another in the eyes of God. So there isn't this distinction where some super Christians exist and some non-super Christians exist and they're on different levels and God uses them in different ways. No, what, what this should have been was a huge encouragement for us because when God looks at us, he sees us all equal in his righteousness. And this means that when he sees apostles like Peter, when he sees prophets like Jeremiah, he loves them in the same way that he loves us. And that also means that we have the same potential to be used in amazing ways in the same way that Peter and the apostles and the prophets were used in amazing ways. The second major point that Peter made in the first four verses was that through an increasingly intimate knowledge of God, his power works through us and provides us everything that we need for eternal life with him. And from this, we took then that God's power is sufficient for everything in our lives. And because of this, when God calls us to his glory and when God calls us to his excellence, instead of having to live this try-hard life where we do, do, do in order to earn our righteousness, we can rest knowing that God has bestowed his righteousness to us through Christ. And my last challenge when I left you guys two weeks ago was to make Christ and his power the source of your life and of your identity and to strive to know God in this more intimate way, in a more personal way. Today, as we go through verses 5 through 15, Peter is going to move on to show us what a life that is abiding in this faith looks like, what the Christian walk looks like in practice. And he's going to show us how because we have this Christian life that we can live, we can actually rest in the amazing glory of who God is. So as we start, we're going to be opening up here in verse 5. Peter begins saying, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge. As Peter goes through the next three to four verses, he's going to be outlining eight specific qualities that we should be seeking to add on to our faith. And as we go through them, what we'll actually see is that Peter is detailing very specifically what the Christian life looks like. And you might have encountered this problem where people are saying, oh, well, you know, I'm just really struggling in my walk right now, or oh, you, should, you should really get a hold on this in your life. Like, I, I feel like you're really struggling. And you can live in this space where you're like, well, what isn't struggling? What, what is a life that is following and abiding in Christ look like? What, what should I be looking for in my life? My encouragement for you guys today is that we're going to actually get to see this. And he starts 
before we dive into these by telling us very specifically to make every effort to supplement or add to our faith. And before we break down this, this first of the two qualities in, in verse 5 here, which is virtue, I think it's important to acknowledge that this pursuit, this idea of making every effort is central to what we're about to talk about. The picture here is that we are doing everything possible in our power to accomplish the action of adding onto our faith. But if all we had from last week was what we see that God gives us everything that we need for his divine power, through his divine power, you might be thinking, why? Why? If God has given me my faith, if God has given me everything I need for an eternal life that's devoted to him, why do I need to do anything at all then? Why can't I just be like, thanks God, and continue moving on? It's critical that we start by looking at the first three words of this. Or four, I guess. He says, for this very reason. This for this very reason should cause us to look back at everything that we heard in the last two weeks and use that as the crux, the reasoning for why we are going to be making this effort. So why, why should we be making every effort? Because of the fact that God has saved us through his righteousness, because he has called us to his glory and excellence, and that though we couldn't fulfill it, he fulfills it for us in his power. It's this idea of a real plant versus a fake plant. Now, I know some of you guys have gardens, and for whatever reason, you can tell a fake plant from like a mile away. There's just something that's like they, the light, I think, just hits them differently, and you can tell when you walk up because a real plant is growing. It's bearing new fruit. It's not in this perfect state of like always immaculate. Sometimes, if you look at my garden, you'll actually see that our flowers more so look terrible, and... They're growing and they're having to uh, get through the slug killer that I put down. And so they're not always in this perfect state. The idea here is that the most natural outcome from our faith would be like a flower that is producing beautiful things in our life. So what does this mean then? If, if these qualities that we're about to go through are, are what adorn our faith or what make our faith appealing. What does it mean for us to make every effort? The notion here is that nothing else is more critical or more important. And I like to think of this like this. All of us have projects that are going on in our lives at any one point in time. We all have things that we want to get done. Some of us have hobbies that we're cultivating, so we're learning new instruments, or we're learning how to make things, or we're really learning the trail system here in Kodiak. And so we spend time cultivating these skills or increasing this knowledge of the area that we live. But I think that the two areas where most of people's projects lie comes to fixing their homes and fixing their cars. My car alone has four different projects that I've been procrastinating for the last two years. Now, when it comes to cars specifically, not every project is critical to the longevity or the life of the vehicle or even to my safety. For instance, 
If you were to pull off the facade that I've put in the back of my car, you would see that this, the seats have some stains and some rips and some tears. And so one of my projects, one of my like way off in the future goals is that someday I would be able to get new seats and replace them. But this is low priority, which is probably why it hasn't happened yet. Those seats being stained and torn up doesn't affect how safe it is for me or my passengers to ride in the car, and it doesn't cause my car to wear itself down more rapidly than normal. So this project is low on my priority level. In contrast to this, about a year ago, Katie was driving the same car down the road towards Mill Bay Beach when the brakes went out. And suddenly, she was in great danger. She's going down Mill Bay, life is good, the sun is out, suddenly, I can't stop anymore. And she's going 45 miles an hour, picking up speed and can't stop. In order for her to, to fix the situation, to stop the vehicle, she eventually had to drive the car into a ditch. And it turns out that the brake line had been corroded and the brake pads had been burned through. And so instead of actually stopping and creating a good seal, there was metal on metal and they were just ripping through the rotors. This problem was now top priority. To use this vehicle at all, action had to be taken and taken now or else the vehicle would just continue to degrade and degrade. Especially if every time Katie wanted to stop, she had to drive into a different ditch. This level of severity, this critical moment, is how Peter is encouraging us to view supplementing our faith. Nothing else is more critical. Nothing else should be taken away from this goal. And to ignore doing it puts us in grave danger. Even more than this, Peter goes on and he uses the word supplement here, which in the Greek has a different, like it's a deeper meaning than just like adding to. I think when we, when we hear add to, we picture like in kindergarten when you've got, you know, your four popsicle sticks and you're like, you have to add one and you just put something else there. No, this type of supplement, this type of add to relates specifically to the completion of a grand objective. God has called us to take part in our sanctification. And though he doesn't need our help to complete it, like we learned two weeks ago, he wants us to relish and joy in the fact that we get to. I think Matt showed us a good picture of this a few weeks ago when he was talking about a father asking their, their kid if they want to help carry a box. That dad does not need the kid's help to carry a box. In fact, most of the time, the kid probably just gets in the way. But the, the joy that God knows when he sees us getting to partake in our sanctification is why he is inviting us to make this top priority. So as we move into these qualities that we're going to talk through today, it's important that we recognize that Peter wants us to furnish these beside our faith. This is something of maximum importance as a joy that we get to experience. And it's because of the amazing grace that God has shown us in his power that we get to do these. So as we work through these qualities, I'm actually going to use some Jenga blocks to help us visualize this. And the first one that he says is that faith is our foundation. 
So we are going to be furnishing everything on top of our faith. And he starts here with adding to our faith virtue. So virtue has two meanings. And normally, when we talk about virtue, it looks like piety or righteous acts. In other words, virtue is doing good stuff with our lives. So the picture here is that when we have our faith, when we recognize that the Lord has given us a great and amazing faith, it shouldn't just be something that we're like, oh, cool, but that there's actual change, that there's actual movement in our lives, that we go and we accomplish good. Following this, Peter says to add to our virtue knowledge. So let me get this out. Actually, I'm just going to get them all out. Zach witnessed a travesty earlier. I dropped like all of these onto my floor. So he says, to add to our virtue, knowledge. Now the knowledge that Peter references here is different than the relational knowledge that we talked about last week. Well, the last time we saw knowledge, it was in the sense of this intimate knowledge where we're knowing God in a full way. The word here, knowledge, is knowledge like we would normally view it, as wisdom, or other, otherwise as doctrine. This is the type of knowledge that can only be gleaned from experience. So what Peter wants for us is that as we experience doing good things in our faith, it wouldn't just be that we do them because we're told to, but that we would actually come to know that they are good. Additionally, this book is written to warn people of false teaching. There was heresy that was spreading throughout the churches of Asia Minor. So knowledge of what it was good, of what can be experienced from God, would have been utmost importance to believers who are hearing so many differing opinions. Just because somebody stands behind a pulpit and says that something is good and right doesn't mean that it is. Without knowledge, we can easily adopt folly and sin masqueraded as wisdom and doctrine. Moving forward into verse 6, the next qualities that Peter encourages us to add to our faith are to our knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness. Self-control or self-mastery is a picture of being in control of your appetites. It's the idea of holding back from something that we want, waiting for something better that we need. Some of you guys know this about me, but I love bread. I, I, I'm not even joking. I would eat a loaf of bread just straight, nothing on it. And the Lord has crippled me with being gluten-free. And so for me to, to hold back, to have self-control, ironically, the hardest area for me is to not eat wheat. I don't understand why it is that God has seemed that this is not good for me in my life, but it takes everything in me to not dive into the Twinkies at Safeway. I just, I, I don't know what it is. My appetite is twisted for something that isn't good for me. 
And like this, sin twists our appetites for what we do that is good for us. What comes most naturally in our lives isn't pursuing righteousness like we've talked about. It isn't accepting wisdom as knowledge. Rather, we tend to be ruled by our appetites in two different ways. The first is that our appetites dictate what we pursue in our lives. Some of you might have an overwhelming appetite for wealth. And when your appetite is for money, it might turn into the fact that the majority of decisions that you make are either for the express purpose of gaining more money or preventing from having to spend it. <laughs> Some of you in here might cringe at the thought of spending even just $100 if the Lord was directing you to. Now, some of you might think, oh, well, I could do that. $100, I got that. That's easy. But if I continue to raise the amount, if I said $1,000, if the Lord is asking you to spend $10,000, if he was asking you to empty your bank account, to spend your life savings for him, does that thought terrify you? If the call that Jesus made to the rich man in Mark 10 to sell all your possessions and follow him scares you so much, you're like, Lord, please don't ever ask me to do that. Or when it leads to a lack of generosity in your life, you should ask yourself if you're cultivating self-control when it comes to your appetite for wealth. Is that what is directing you as opposed to your faith? Secondly, we can be ruled by our appetites when they become the core of our identity. This is most notably seen outside of the church in our current culture where the old adage, you are what you eat, has almost flipped on its head and become you are what you don't eat. Someone introducing themselves might start with their identity as being a vegan or a vegetarian or a pescatarian. Insert whatever diet you are participating in. And this is how people are saying, this is who I am. This is what is central to me. And that's just food. This is your literal appetite. The most common case of an appetite becoming an identity in our culture is not really in what you eat, but more in who you're attracted to. And the truth is that you are so much more than what you want to eat or who you like. So rather than ruining our appetites with chips and onion dip before a beautiful steak dinner, Peter is guiding us towards self-control so that we can enjoy God's grace to the fullest. As believers, we have been liberated from our appetites of sin and are now freed to savor the meal of God's grace. To self-control, Peter says to add steadfastness or endurance the idea here is that no matter what happens, we will patiently endure because we know that the Lord is better. And this is hard to do. But I think Peter knows this, which is why he's encouraging us to pursue it with importance. And we should remember that when he is writing this letter to us, he is in prison, probably days before he will go to be crucified upside down. Peter was encouraging us to endure while he was enduring a suffering that I can't even fathom. 
And even more than this, this is just physical pain. Sometimes, as we pursue self-mastery, as we pursue righteousness, we fail. Sometimes our appetites get the best of us and we slip. Having endurance, having patience, having steadfastness means that when we are beaten and bruised or when we fail monumentally, we don't turn away from our Lord. And instead, we tuck in our heads and we lean into him. He goes on to say, to add to your steadfastness, godliness. Godliness is hard to understand, but I think the most appropriate way for us to adopt it is to view it as piety or devotion to God. I'm sure you guys have seen motivational self-help videos where there's usually a, a guy behind like a podcast table with the headphones on and he describes all these different situations. And after everyone, it gets increasingly hard. He'll say things like, oh, your life is falling apart. Good. Oh, you've just been jumped in the street and all your money's gone. Good. And he goes on and it gets worse and worse and worse. And he says, oh, these things are good because they're opportunities for you. These are opportunities for you to grow, for you to get stronger, for you to learn more. Steadfastness without godliness puts the, the locus, the reason for what we do back on us. And we might say things when, when we're enduring or when we're pursuing righteousness in our lives. And we might say, well, you know, these cultivate really good morals in me. Or my children, if we prioritize these, it'll be really good for our kids. Or we might even echo what these podcasters would say and say that hardship gives you opportunities to grow in new ways. And self-improvement, self-motivation to grow and go through hard things with a smile, that's not bad. But ultimately, if, if it's just for our sake, it's selfish. A faith that pursues these qualities for our own sake is just as selfish as a sinful lifestyle that we lived before. It just might have a little more longevity. Last week, the youth group went bowling together. And as I was thinking about devotion in preparation for this, I was thinking that devotion is kind of a lot like bowling. When you go bowling, you have two options for your lane. You can either put up the bumpers or stoke your ego and tell the guy that you don't need them and leave them down. Living in sin is like playing with no bumpers. There's a really, really good chance that you're going to go into the gutter. Now, with a lot of speed and a lot of energy and a lot of focus, you might be able to avoid it. But a faith without devotion... So having your faith with devotion or without devotion to God is like playing with the bumpers. You can block off the gutter the entire way, but in every bowling alley, there's always this little chance that at the very end, you'll still gutter ball it. And at the end of the day, whether you play with gutters or you don't play with the bumpers, the ball is always going to wind up in the same place. So faith without devotion in a sinful lifestyle, they both wind up ultimately far away from the Lord. 
like I mentioned earlier, we have been invited to take part in this. Not for our sake, but for God's sake. Because it is a joy for us to participate in becoming more like him. And when endurance is set in our Father and not in ourselves, it makes enduring so much easier. Normally agonizing situations that would break us, that would cripple us, become moments for us to joy and relish in our Father. As we move into verse 7, Peter finalizes the qualities that he wants us to pursue, saying, "...and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love." And I'm going to be honest, when I was studying through this for myself, um, I tend not to pay these last two very much heed. To me, it was almost easy to write them off as the staple, love your brothers and sisters, and everybody else too, part of the Bible. However, I think that these two are just as important as the others because of how they specifically address the tendency of the human heart to judge people. How many of you have been in a situation where you're hearing somebody complain about something that is really, really hard for them? And they believe that it's super difficult and it's challenging. And you have gone through this before. So in the back of your mind, you're thinking, are you seriously dealing with this? Like, I, just, I just handled this like three weeks ago. It's not that hard. This has become a a common occurrence in my home as Judah's diapers have progressively grown worse and as he's grown bigger. Katie and I will take turns throughout the day, giving each other breaks and uh, taking turns doing the diapers, but there's usually that time when he's finally gone to sleep and we're talking through our day where we have our comparison of who had the worst diaper. And we always embellish it and try to make the case that ours was more gross. Oh, you don't know. It looked like this. I'm not going to describe them. I'm going to save you. <laughs> and, and this is a, a funny way of thinking about, like, judging others in their, their trials. But we do the exact same thing with things that are way more severe than, than a dirty diaper. And during hard situations should bring about the maturity and the wisdom in our lives necessary to love other people in the same situations. But more often than not, in the face of other people's hardship, we use our own endurance as a way to puff ourselves up as a more religious veteran, or it makes us frustrated because somebody else is struggling, and we're like, why are you struggling? Why is this a problem for you? Can't you just get over it? God has called us through Peter to love our brothers and sisters, to build each other up in their suffering rather than judge them for it. And as he says this, he finalizes the last quality with adding to our brotherly affection, love. And this bridges the gap. And it says in the same way that we care for our brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't localize it there. We don't build up the walls and say it doesn't go anywhere else than that. He's saying that we should care about everybody else as well. Our focus cannot be on only those who claim Christ. We are to love all. So as we put these last three. It's capped with love. And I think it's fitting that Peter ends these qualities with love because 
as we've built our little Jenga tower here, love is at the top. Now, I don't know how much you guys know about building skyscrapers, but lots of skyscrapers end with this crazy massive point called a spire. And the reason that architects put these spires on the top of already supermassive buildings is one, to say that they got their building to be taller than somebody else's, and two, so that people miles away will still be able to see and look where their tower is, even if they can't see the rest of the building. The spire is then meant to inspire others. So as we look to love as being the top, the last thing that Peter wants us to furnish in our faith, the spire of God's love in our lives should inspire others to come and see what the rest of our lives look like. Verses 8 and 9 read, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed of his former sins. Now, from this, we can see that this Jenga tower isn't even quite a full picture of how we are to understand these in our lives. And you might have noticed that I've been using the phrase furnish beside. The idea isn't that we obtain one quality and then can move on to the other. It's not that once we have faith, now we can pursue virtue. Instead, it is that all of them should be equally present and pursued simultaneously. So while my virtue might supplement my faith, it cannot be pursued at the expense of my self-mastery. They're equally important and critical to each other. And to remove one would be to remove a block in the tower that supports the others. Nonetheless, the point is that these qualities shouldn't exist for us in a vacuum. They should all be present and all increasing in our lives. Why? Peter makes it very clear that when these qualities are present, the pursuit of knowing God more intimately and feeling his power work in our lives is made effective and real. He moves on in verses 10 and 11 to say, Therefore, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think this verse is beautiful for a huge reason. It says that you have been chosen. Let that sink in for a minute. You, believer, have been chosen. The almighty God of the universe, who creates all things, who has been around for all time, who has looked on you, has found favor. Praise the Lord for this. And it's not that he's chosen you to a lifetime of duty-bound obedience, of torture. No, he has chosen you so that you can live with him in eternity, in a place that we can't even describe with words. Language cannot capture 
the majesty of what God has set aside for you. And Peter is saying that because of this, we can set aside all other things to excitedly, to energetically pursue confirming this calling that God has for us. These qualities in our lives are the fruit that show that our faith, that our calling is real and living. On the flip side, to not have these qualities, Peter would say is like being blind. It's like having forgotten the heart of the gospel. This is why in verse 12 he says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think that he brings this up for a good reason. Because when we're faced with false teaching, when we're faced with sin that constantly tempts us, when hardship is permeating in our lives, it can be easier for us to look away from Christ and to focus in closer to ourselves or shut our eyes entirely. We forget the hope that has been given to us for tomorrow and we slip back into living in the now. I know that it's easy to forget these qualities. I, I have forgotten them in my own life. Some of you have heard my testimony before, but when I, when I moved away to college, I forgot for two years. And my whole first two years going to college, I lived entirely for myself and for the now. And if you asked me, if you were to stop me in the hall and you were to say, Eli, do you believe in God? I'd say, yeah, of course I do. And there would be moments of fleeting clarity when I'd be waking up after passed out drunk at a party and being like, why? Why am I living this way? But if anybody had seen the rhythm of my life, if what I was going through had asked me what I was actually doing, or if they actually saw me, it would seem like I was a completely different person like I had forgotten everything that I claimed that I believed in. No situation in life, no hardship, no thing that causes us to stumble is an excuse for these equalities to not be present and not growing in our lives. How do I know this? Verses 13 and 14, they give it to us very clearly. Peter says, I think it right as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Peter, right now, is looking forward to the eternity set before him with our Savior. And he says that forever and ever he will seek to remind us of these, so that we will have hope, so that we will have peace and grace despite all situations. Peter knows he's going to die. He says it plainly. He says, I know the putting off of my body will be soon. And in our last verse, number 15, he says, so I will make every effort so that after my departure, you will be able at any time to recall these things. I've already said this today, but when life throws curveballs at us, it's a lot easier for us to close our eyes and focus in on ourselves and try to duck the ball rather than to face it head on and catch it. 
So I think as we move into how we can apply this into our lives, how can we live this truth today that we can begin to combat closing our eyes by cultivating a rhythm of remembrance? So what does this mean? What does a rhythm of remembrance look like? Well, going back to the very first point that Peter makes in this section, we should be able at any time to recall that God is everything that we need. That God is the one who is in control and that he knows me, that God chose me. When we remember this, we remember that his glory and his magnificence are all surpassing. And so from this, we can seek to know God more and trust that he will guide us. And as we remember that God will guide us as we seek to know him more, we'll see that God reveals more to us about himself and he adds to our faith these qualities that Peter has shown to us today. And in doing so, we will, will actually know him more. Our faith will go somewhere. Our relationship with God will deepen. And because of that, we'll have confidence in his grace. But it doesn't just end there. When we have confidence in our Savior, it's easier for us to trust him. And so we go back to the beginning. And what we see is that Peter and how has given us an engine for a life that is consistently growing to look more like Christ and knowing God more. That is trusting in Christ more every day. That when anything comes is immovable because God is the foundation, not ourselves. God is the strength and so we are safe. This is worth remembering. And it's my challenge for you today as you leave to commit this to memory. I had in my notebook in the front, I drew a little diagram of, of what this pattern looks like so that when I open it now, I'm reminded of this. Secondly, if you have been living in your faith and you've been struggling, if you're struggling to know God more, if you look at your life and you think, that your relationship just isn't going anywhere. It could be that you have been blinded to the truth of the gospel. And I encourage you to look at the qualities Peter has shown us today and carefully examine your life to see if any are missing. Are you experiencing a life that is obedient to the Lord? Sometimes the curveballs that I mentioned before that God throws at us are literally other believers. Sometimes we don't want to believe what God says is true. We think if I love others like myself, people are going to walk all over me. If I trust what God says is true, then people will hate me. They'll call me a bigot. They'll want nothing to do with me. Peter warns us, Living like this as a believer is like becoming so nearsighted that we have blinded ourselves. And he's using a very clever picture here, and I'm going to ask you guys to participate with me in seeing this in actuality. So for a moment, I want everybody to close their eyes. Don't worry, I'm closing my eyes too, so you guys know I'm not going to be making weird faces at you or anything like that. 
Right now, if you're looking at the back of your eyes, um, that is the most nearsighted that you can be. And when you close your eyes, what you're looking at is literally yourself. You can open your eyes now. You might not know this, but when you close your eyes, it's not like they just stop functioning. You're seeing the back of your eyelids. That's why you're seeing yourself. And the picture here that Peter's showing us is that when we forget to pursue these qualities in lives, if they're absent, if they aren't growing, that we are so focused on ourselves that we are blinded to the truth of the gospel. My challenge for you today is to open your eyes to the majesty of the kingdom that the Lord is presenting to you. The glory of the kingdom set before us is indescribable. John can only do his best when he says that the kingdom that Christ has provided for us is like having the glory of God. Its radiance is like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls, and each of the gates made of a single pearl, pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. He can't, he can only approximate what the kingdom that is set before him looks like. So, how can I focus on increasing these qualities in my life? When somebody hurts me, when somebody hates me, when I lose the things that I have in my life, when I might be being crucified upside down for my faith, I can focus on increasing these qualities in my life because my eyelids cannot even compare to the glory of Christ. So why would I ever want to look away?